Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Luke chapter 24. This is our sixth and final week in our D and Reconstruction series, and we'll just dive right into the scriptures beginning in verse 13. I apologize, there will probably be like no slides today because I redid everything. So. so you can actually have to turn to a Bible. Verse 13. A little bit of context. Jesus just died. The disciples had pretty much given their lives to follow him. They'd given kind of up their careers, their jobs, relationships. They'd staked everything on Jesus. I liken it to if you've seen a movie or maybe you've experienced somebody making a really significant investment with all of their finances for it all to come crumbling down and you can just watch in their face as it seems as if their life is over. That's what I imagine for these disciples. They've given everything, and now in this moment, it seems as if everything is lost. Now, at this point, Jesus has risen, but they don't fully understand that yet. We pick up in verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them, the disciples, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while, while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Again, Jesus had just died. They don't know that this is Jesus. They're discouraged because everything that they had given, everything they had in their life, they'd given to this Jesus guy who in their mind is, is likely dead and gone. And uh, at the, the very best case, they just wasted three, four years and all their resources. Worst case, they're probably going to die as a result of this as well. So things are not looking good for them. They're discouraged as they're walking along this road, kind of disputing with each other, as Jesus said, they're in the midst of their own deconstruction process. At this moment, as they're walking through life, going wherever they're going with whatever plans they had, they're asking questions, they're processing their confusions and doubts, and what they thought was true is being torn apart, and they're trying to reassemble it with something. Again, they're discouraged, they're deconstructing, but they didn't give up. They're discouraged, they're deconstructing, but they wouldn't give up. It reminds me of a fake little blue fish called Dory in uh, Finding Nemo. If you've seen Finding Nemo, Dory is a very confused fish because she suffers from short-term memory loss, and she can't really remember much of anything. It comes in, in little bits and pieces, yet somehow through the, the whole narrative of this account, of this movie about fish in the sea, Dory finds her way to where she's going, or maybe better put, she's found. She remembers just tiny little bits and pieces and key moments just to spur them on just enough to get where they're going. And at the end of the day, there's three words that really stand out when we remember Dory. It's just keep swimming. 
She doesn't understand what to do next. She doesn't remember who she is half the time, who her parents are, why she is where she is, what weighs up, what weighs down. Sometimes she's overwhelmed by that. Sometimes she's in danger because of that. Sometimes she's laughing and it's okay. But no matter what, she just keeps swimming. And there's something to be reminded of in that as we process like hard things, as we don't know what's going on to just keep going because Jesus always will find us. Look at verse 16 again here. If this isn't encouraging, I don't know what is in the, the midst of a de and reconstruction process. They were prevented from recognizing him. Here is Jesus, and as we read it, it strongly appears as if Jesus himself is preventing them from knowing that he is there. Their, their whole life is falling apart, everything they've given for this Jesus guy, and they're going, we don't know what happened to him, it looks like he's dead, maybe not, some people are saying maybe he's coming back, but it, it, they're discouraged. All the while, Jesus is right there talking to them, but he prevented them from seeing him for some reason. Take that in for a second. Jesus prevented them from seeing him in their moment of, of darkness and seemingly so much loss. John Tyson was, or is a pastor in New York and he was speaking about deconstruction and he, he said this, I think it's, it's important for us, maybe for some of you, if you're in the midst of this type of season or if you know somebody that is. He says, I know what it feels like, but being on the other side of that, meaning deconstruction, I know how faithful God is and what you get on the other side of walking through that. Even though it is very painful, I would not trade that. I am deeper, stronger, I have more intimacy, have more gratitude than if I didn't go through it. I have seen that personally. There are multiple things in my life. I can think of probably two very specifically that I never want to go through again. Night after night of waking up at three in the morning because that's what I do and walking outside and just pacing and praying and crying and wondering, going, God, what are you doing? For days and weeks and months and longer. And I never want to go through those things again. Yet as insane as it sounds, I'm thankful I did. Because now I look back and I know as a matter of fact, I would not know his faithfulness the way I do today if he had not got me through that. This is actually one of the reasons if you read the scriptures, first of all, they're all about Jesus. They're not about us, though we're a secondary character. They're always, always about him. But this is why we see this theme of God continually stacking the deck against himself in the scriptures. He makes it as hard as possible for him and his people to win. We see uh, maybe the, the best or funniest uh, kind of picture of this is when his people are in this war. They're getting devastated. The, the enemies around them, the other nations, are stealing all of their food. They're burning their towns. They're mistreating everybody. Like, it is awful. And then God calls the weakest man of the weakest tribe, this guy named Gideon, who's afraid of everything, kind of like Tyler. He doesn't want to sit in the front row. I love Tyler, actually. Here's Gideon. God goes, I'm going to pick the weakest of the weak. And then he goes, but, but I'll give you an army. And there's this big army. And then God goes, but I really want to make a point. So now that we have the army and I've got the weakest of the weak to be their, their leader, 
and he's doubted so many times that I've had to prove to him again and again that he's the man for the job. I'm gonna do this test, and whoever drinks water in this certain way is who I'll, I'll choose to be the army. And so they go to this little body of water and they drink, and there's like normal guys that like take the water and drink it, but nope, there's a ton of them. Just I think it was 300 that lapped the water like dogs, like the weirdos, very weird. And God goes, just them, just them and the, the pansy guy. That's, that's what I'm gonna do to defeat this massive big army when the whole nation, the whole like moms and, and children and husbands, like everybody's going, our lives are at stake and God's going, watch this, it's impossible. We will lose, you will lose, you have no chance, but me, but Jesus. That's it. Over and over again throughout this whole book, what you are going to watch and see, and over and over again in your life if you follow Jesus, what you will see is that the odds will be stacked against you, sometimes on purpose, so that Jesus can prove again and again that he is indeed God, and we are indeed not, because we are so quick to forget that. We are so quick to lose sight of his faithfulness. We see this in the, the book of, of Job too, which I was gonna talk on and will just a little bit. Job is wealthy, he has a wife, he has kids, he has cattle, he's got money, they throw great parties, he has everything that you could ever want and he has an amazing relationship with God and God loves him. And then everything falls apart when God allows Satan to, to test him. He loses his kids, he loses his wealth, he loses homes. And then he suffers personally physical pain. We read this in uh, Job chapter 2, 7 through 10, after Job has, has lost almost everything. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. Things have turned quickly. Here is this wealthy man sitting in the ashes, taking scraps of pottery to scrape his own skin with. So that's all he has left. The only comfort he has now in life is the feeling of a, a sharp object scraping against his miserable skin. So bad his wife comes along and says, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I might kind of phrase that like he just kept swimming. It was miserable, but he just kept going. He didn't understand, but he wouldn't stop. In fact, there was moments he was not happy. He was angry. He asked God all the questions, but he would not give up. Yet what we, we see in the account of Job is that he held two true things in his hands at, at once. He would not give up on God. He would just keep swimming. Yet he was also miserable. <laughs> and allowed himself to be miserable. One of the mistakes we often make as Christians is we think we have to pretend we have it all together, and that is just not true. Oftentimes, life is miserable, and God doesn't call us to pretend it's not. He calls us to be honest about it and to turn to him as God. 
we read this in uh, the third chapter. After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. He said, may the day I was born perish and the night when they said a boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness. May God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. May an eclipse of the sun terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away. May it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse certain days cast a spell on it. Those who are skilled and rousing Leviathan. May its morning stars grow dark. May it wait for daylight but have none. May it not see the breaking of dawn. Job is saying, I wish I had ever been born. My life is so miserable, I don't want to breathe another breath. In fact, I wish I'd never had in the first place. He's at the true peak of misery. And at one point, he looks at his wife and goes, stop. God is faithful. I don't get it, but we will not curse him. We will continue to follow. And then I sort of imagine his wife leaving and Job just losing it. Like he had to be strong for a minute, but then he lives out his misery. We see these questions asked by, by Job throughout this, this book. He asks God, why have you afflicted me? He asks God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why can't I find you? Why do you punish me without cause? Why did you even create me? And in the midst of all this, as he's scraping himself with pottery and miserable and loved ones are lost, his wealth is lost, he wishes he was dead. His friends come along, and he has some good friends. They sit with him in the ashes for a long time just to be with him, which is what we should do. Then they give him awful advice. They actually use the scriptures in ways that aren't true to tell him that he must be sinning, and this is why he's getting punished. There's like chapter after chapter after chapter of this dialogue where his three friends are saying, the only possible reason for this to be happening is because you've sinned. So repent and everything will go away. Like, oh, that might sound biblical. It's not at all. Unfortunately, when we find ourselves in the midst of our own de and reconstruction processes, there's a really good chance you're going to get a lot of bad advice from people, even people that love you. Fortunately for, for Job, he does have somebody else come along, one other friend who gives good advice. He goes, that's not the case. This isn't happening because of your sin. Sometimes God uses our suffering and our pain and our brokenness to show us who he is, to draw us nearer to him. Maybe you find that comforting, maybe you don't. It is true, though. Don't always understand it, but God uses suffering and brokenness to remind us that we are not God and that he is. To draw us to understand who he is more and more. Do you notice on this road to Emmaus, as Jesus is walking with his disciples back in Luke 24, he didn't come alongside of them as they're discouraged and distraught, it says, in their face and go, hey, you idiots, rejoice, I'm here. He wasn't like, hey, sing some worship songs now. You should be happy. Get it together. He didn't do that. In fact, in the midst of them processing all of this brokenness, he just asked questions. He just listened, which ironically is what God does with Job as well. 
Job was miserable. But to continue with the, uh, the Dory theme, he would not stop swimming. He would not give up. He lived in both. He was honest about how brutal this was and that he didn't understand. And he was angry with God, but he would not curse God. He would not reject him. He hung on to a sliver of hope that somehow, somewhere, God knew what he was doing. And eventually, that would be the case. Let's go back to uh, Luke 24. Verse 15 here. While they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. That's really good news, because it's true for us as well. While we are going through this process with questions, confused, in pain, Jesus will come near and walk with you. You may not even recognize he's there, though. How intriguing is that? Jesus came near and walked with them. The one person they're talking about, the one person they need, he's there. His presence is given, but they don't see it. When we go through this, when we're in pain, when we have questions and doubts, Jesus will come near and he will walk with you. And he'll meet us where we're at, even in the midst of our own confusion and, and pain and doubts and, and questions. We see this in the, the Gospel of John as well with uh, the disciples, especially Thomas. In John chapter 20, verse 24, we read this. Again, Jesus has died. He's not fully made himself known yet to his disciples, except he did. Eventually, he went through a locked door and spoke with them. Thomas, though, wasn't there. And so all of Thomas's friends had just kind of endured their own tea and reconstruction process. Their life was all about Jesus. And then Jesus was dead, and they're like, our lives are over. That's why the door was locked. They were afraid they were going to get killed. And then Jesus comes along, alive and well, risen from the grave. And they're like, he is who we thought he was, but even better. And so they, they share with Thomas. At this point, their deconstructing is over and they start reconstructing in good ways based on who Jesus was. But Thomas goes, I'm not with you. Unless I see for myself, I'm gonna stay in this destructing, deconstructing phase. His timeline was different than his friend's. The way he processed was different than his friend's and that was okay, we read it here in verse 24. But one of the 12, Thomas, called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. I, I could just picture them. Can you imagine? Like you watched Jesus die. You fully watched him die and breathe his last spear in his side, the whole thing. Like the Romans perfected execution. He's dead and he's been dead for days and there's no hope and you're hiding because you think you're gonna get killed. That's their status. And then everything changes, so you can imagine they're excited. And so Thomas isn't there, but they see it. His good friends that, that he's lived with for some time, they've all lived together. They go, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas is like, I don't care. They're like, no, 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 you don't get it. He was dead and now he's alive. We have seen him. And it still didn't matter to Thomas. He didn't believe them. And that was okay. It didn't come together for him in that moment. And that was all right. So the other disciples kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I do not see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
And then Jesus is going to come and walk alongside of him. After eight days, which probably felt like an eternity, it wasn't right then when Thomas wanted. It wasn't right when Jesus rose from the grave. It was sometime later. His disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Notice this. Jesus heard Thomas. Jesus saw Thomas. Jesus knew Thomas. Even though he wasn't answering him in that moment, he knew everything that was going on in Thomas's mind. He knew every question he was asking, every point of confusion that he was wrestling with. He understood all of it. Thomas responded to him then in that timing, my Lord and my God. Quite some words from somebody who just said they would never believe. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe without seeing are blessed. Back to, to Luke 24, verse 18 this time. Jesus is just meeting these men, or maybe it's better to say they're just meeting him, though they still don't know it's him on this road. Verse 17 Jesus asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Verse 18, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Can you imagine that? That poor guy. He is kind of emotional in this moment. And so he insults the God of the universe that just rose from the grave as they're walking along. Because are you the only one? Are you that clueless? You're the only guy in the whole world right now that doesn't know what's happening. Little does he know he's actually talking to Jesus because Jesus in this moment is preventing him from knowing that it's him. There's a lot of complexity there. There's, there's also this little bit of really good news though. Jesus can handle our insults and our emotions in the midst of our doubts and questions and concerns and confusion and we don't know what to do and we get mad at God like Job did, he did, and we say insulting things to a guy walking down the street that's actually Jesus, Jesus didn't freak out at him. Jesus didn't go, hey, I was just gonna let you know all, the, all your sins are forgiven and I just saved the world, but never mind, not you. So you were kind of rude to me because you didn't understand everything. Everyone else has it now, good to go, but not you. Like it doesn't work that way. Jesus can handle our issues. He's big enough. He's, he's God. He can take care of it. Continue to, to read in verse 19. Jesus says, this is funny, what things? He just went through it all and he goes, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping. Whew. You hear that? The tense there? We were hoping. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came up and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
At that point, that's not real believable. Women had no like, right to say what did and didn't happen in this culture. That wasn't right, but that was the reality in this moment. And so there's no legal jurisdiction, legit reasoning for them to believe. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Jesus said to them, how unwise and slow are you to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going further, but they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Okay, that's great news, but before we get to the great news, I just want to point something out. They're walking on this road days after Jesus died, and he could have told them all of this, solved all of their problems right there when he met them, and he didn't. And it's supposedly a seven-mile walk on what they're doing. He didn't, after the first mile, say, hey, by the way, it's me. He let him walk the second mile. And after the second mile, he didn't go, hey, I know this is really hard, but I'm here. Then he had him walk the third mile, and he didn't share anything. He just listened and asked questions. And then they walked this fourth miserable mile as he had them recount everything that had just happened and what they gave their life for, what they were hoping would happen, and what did not. And he didn't fix it. On to the fifth and sixth and seventh mile, all the way into some home where they were going to eat. Jesus will open our eyes and reveal himself to us. He will meet us where we're at, but he does it in our timing, and often it is not the kind of timing we would like. He will get there eventually. He might be with us, and we don't even realize it. But we have to be patient. He opens the way for us to understand and see. He's the one that meets us where we're at. Yet in the, the midst of that, waiting, one of the keys, unfortunately, because it's miserable, and this DN reconstruction process is waiting waiting for him to be the one that reconstructs, waiting for the spirit to provide the plans and the pathway and the guidance. But while we wait, we must keep looking. We must have our eyes open and our ears ready to hear when he speaks and when he shows himself. In a... Our, our practice booklet here, A.J. Swoboda, has this amazing line where he says something along the lines of, if Moses had an iPhone when he walked alongside the burning bush, he never would have seen it. And I think that is pretty dang profound. I can picture Moses there shepherding some sheep, walking in the desert, and then being too much like me in the desert, and he's just like this, just walking around, checking Twitter or his fantasy football score. And there's God burning in a bush, wanting to have this interaction that would change all of world history. And Moses just looks at his screen and keeps walking because his eyes weren't up. His ears weren't tuned in to hear from God when God would speak. A.J. Svoboda continues to, to kind of talk on this, this topic. You'll read it this week in our booklet. He says this, the greatest enemy to faith is not hedonism, but distraction. Could this be true? 
While the modern person may be evoked to spiritual hunger and curiosity about God, there's rarely time for such activities. The spirit is willing, but the schedule is not. Our lack of margin to think through and reflect on life's biggest questions is glaringly evident. In their wildly popular undergraduate course at Yale, Life Worth Living, theologians uh, Miroslav Wolf and Matthew Krosman highlight one of their students' comments. The world's greatest traditions have been trying to answer this question for 3,000 plus years, and now I'm supposed to work out my own answer in my spare time. We don't give God much time. We don't tune our ear to hear and our eyes to see. And so while we wait in the miserable reality that is Dean Reconstruction with the hope of what will come, our job is to wait, but to wait readily to hear and to see what he wants us to hear and see. Again, Jesus reveals himself in his timing, not ours. On to verse 32. And their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? This, this verse is really important, verse 33. That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. How far had they just walked? Quite a while that day. And now they're gonna walk back at night, which was dangerous, but... That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered there together. Who said, the Lord, they said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he, had, he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Do you see the response? I think maybe the, the reason I scrapped this Job sermon and chose to go this way today is this very verse, though I didn't know it until this morning, I guess. I feel like going through this de- and reconstruction process can be this unbelievably horrific experience. It's like being in the middle of the ocean in this dark, rainy, awful storm with huge waves and nobody is around and it feels like you're drowning, and you're going under the water, and then it's everything in you to just kick enough and get your arms up just enough to gulp one little breath, and then you go back under, and with everything left, you do it one more time, and you think, I only have one or two left. And there's so many people in our country, so many of your friends and family members, maybe this is where you're at, and it feels like you're drowning. It feels like hope is only gonna last a tiny bit longer, one or two more breaths. But God's plan for us, for each other, when we're in this spiritual drowning of sorts, this dark night of the soul, as it's sometimes referred to as, is that your story, your testimony about the real person of Jesus Christ is like a lifeboat for the person in the middle of this ocean drowning. And I've experienced that. And the moments when I have nothing left and I'm not gonna make it up one more time, there's been people in my life that have come along and provided a lifeboat. And the lifeboat was in the form of their own stories. It's, I've been there and guess what? He was faithful. 
When we sing songs together as a church and some of them are exuberant and celebratory and we're happy, it's not so that you will pretend everything is good because we have to pretend everything's good if we're Christians. That is not why. What we're doing is we're testifying to what Jesus has actually done in our lives, that he's actually that faithful, that he has not failed, that we've been through misery and brokenness and loss that is deeply painful. And yet... He met us where we were. He allowed our questions and our insults and our emotions. And when it seemed like there was no hope, when it seemed impossible, when the odds were fully stacked against us, he was victorious in his own timing because he always is. The moment that Jesus will be untrustworthy is a moment that does not exist. That very hour they got up and returned to do what? To share their story because there were people that needed to hear it. As you or someone you know or your neighbor or your friend or a family member go through this process, is there there someone that you need to share your story with? Not just share facts from the scriptures about Jesus, though that might be appropriate, Is there someone that you need to share how Jesus has actually changed your life? Because that was God's plan. What he then sent the disciples to do was to share their story about how Jesus actually really tangibly changed their life. Not just a future distant hope, though that's part of it, but how Jesus has evidently worked in your life now. I can guarantee there's somebody in your life, there will be somebody you walk alongside of or drive near or talk to at work or at the grocery store or someone you're close to that needs that lifeboat. And when we share the story of what Jesus has actually done, it might just be what lifts them up. We're often called to be a part of the way that Jesus finds somebody. He's the hero, he's the savior, but he allows us to be a part of it. I'm gonna close reading Matthew chapter 18, which is perhaps familiar. Verse 10, see that you don't look down on one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Here's what I love about this. Won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and, here's the key, go and search for the stray and then he finds it. Back to to Dory, the little blue fish swimming in the sea. She had a small role to play in this whole thing, but more often than not, she was confused. More often than not, she was lost. She helped in the finding, but she was certainly more found than she was leading. She was certainly more led than she was helping. And that's kind of how it goes for us. There's this beautiful mystery that we have a a role to play in our own or others' D and reconstruction process. But at the end of the day, what we see from cover to cover in the scriptures is that he will come and find us. And in the meantime, our job is to just keep swimming, to not give up, to trust that he'll show up. And it might seem like it is at the last second, 
but I can promise because I've seen it in my own life. And we're going to sing in a few minutes and you're going to hear a whole bunch of people that are singing because they know it, because they've experienced it and they've followed him in their own life. He will show up. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just overwhelm everybody in this room with power to grasp your love for us, that we would know the truth about Jesus Christ and that he would lead every part of our lives. Take down any blinders and earplugs keeping us from knowing who you are. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us courage to speak up and to share our own stories. To keep fighting, to stay afloat while we wait for you to show up and save us. You are good. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you never lose and that you never fail. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.